the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into hour two of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is one of three authors of a new book, and they uh, consider themselves futurists. We're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. The book is A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050. And Tim Andrews is my guest this hour. He is one of the authors of that book, and he joins me by phone. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's nice to meet you. Okay, so let's start right off the bat. What is a futurist? Well, uh, it's a good question because there isn't, <laughs> I don't think, a standard definition. But I guess we get labeled futurists because we talk about the future. I think there really kind of are two different categories probably. There are people who write trends and predictions of the future. Next year there'll be so many smartphones, in five years there'll be so many of this, that, or the other thing. <clears throat> we aren't that kind of futurist. We think about long-term trends that seem inevitable and then what we can do about them. So we don't try to predict accurately any precise part of the close-in future. We look at long-term trends and say, 
what opportunities does that create for us to work together to create a better future? So it's really about not so much predicting the future as it is designing what the future will look like. That's an excellent way to put it. Yep. The phrase that was one of our inspirations from one of our most inspiring mentors, Alan Kay, was inventing the future. Uh, and his famous quote was, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And uh, particularly in an age where we have so much power in computing and other capabilities, as he said to me once, as long as you don't violate the laws of physics, there isn't a lot you can't do. And so rather than trying to predict point things, remember that you have a lot of power to help shape the future. It's not predetermined. Uh, the capabilities are there, and how we use them is what really shapes or designs the future. Yeah, if I want to, if I want to think the future is going to have, uh, you know, people like George Jetson flying around in, you know, flying cars, I should invent a flying car. Correct. Exactly. If I do that, there's a much better chance that people will be flying cars in the future. Um, But how did this title come about? It's it's a a bit of a head turner for me. A brief history of a perfect future. Well, we uh, the working title when we started the book was Future Perfect. It's just a play on words, and uh, the. The idea can, and, and then, you know, it turns out as you go through these processes, there's 15 books in Future Perfect. So uh, we were forced to rethink our naming structure. Uh, so it's no more complicated than that. But we liked the idea of the brief history because we talk about writing future histories in the book, looking backwards from a long distance time frame to get us out of thinking too incrementally about where we are today. That we call these future histories. So we like the idea of saying a brief history of the perfect future, to try and envision that perfect future, write a brief history about it, and then think about how you can work backwards to today and start to make that future actually happen. And, and that's different than going back and just grabbing some moments in history where the future was changed. That's correct. Right. So we're not trying to look backwards. We're actively trying to look forwards. And, but rather than uh, another uh, phrase that we use is we're trying, it's very hard to think clearly about longer trends in the future beyond, say, five or ten years um, because our human nature just isn't predisposed to think that way. So we think very clearly about short-term things. We have what we might call linear thinking built in. And uh, a lot of the trends that really dominate over the long run are nonlinear. So computing is the obvious one that everybody's somewhat familiar with, I think, now, but not really familiar with just how astounding the evolution has been that, uh, you know, the phone in your pocket, I think we cite, can run 120 million Apollo space missions simultaneously. And just thinking about that from 1960 to the present, how far computing has come, if in 1960 you were thinking about computing today, 
you could have figured that sort of broadly, that, that that would be possible. In fact, a lot of the computer scientists back then did who created much of what we use today because they could see how quickly the technology was advancing. And if you do that, you uh, do what we call breaking the spell of the present. You try and just predict, well, what do I need to do to get to five years from today? You tend to just extrapolate everything we already have. That's linear thinking. So everything's going to get a little bit better every year, which is usually what happens to a certain extent. But over 20 years or 30 years, these things that are advancing more rapidly, more nonlinearly, dominate everything else. So even 30 or 40 years ago, you could say, if you were paying attention, oh, computing and information technology are really going to dominate almost everything. They're going to change everything. Well, that, Fair enough, that's kind of what happened. Tim, that kind of begs the question, are we, is, is the average Joe on the street, like, like me, just riding technology to the future? Yes. In fact, that's what usually happens. And one of the things we're trying to encourage is a little more active participation. So rather than just sort of, as you say, hopping on and riding it wherever it goes, remembering that it's not predetermined where it goes and we can have an impact on it by working together. And we have some, some real challenges in front of us right now, but if we work on it together, we have some opportunity to use these incredible capabilities to change things for the better. You know, it's, it's controversial talking about uh, climate change and, and to what degree man has caused climate change and to what degree it's cyclical. And there are all these debates about whether some people believe the science, other people, you know, think that, you know, we need to do something immediately, that it's, that it's uh, um, you know, that we're literally uh, carving our own tombstones by, by not addressing um, sustainability, for example. But um, in, in all of that, there are some people who hold out hope that that we can make a difference and make a difference in time through changing technology and and uh, political will um, what are your thoughts on that what what are the big issues that we should be tackling is that one of them yes uh, if you're talking about climate change we certainly think so and that sort of was the inspiration for the book to a certain extent, was we wanted to take an optimistic viewpoint. And it's easy to be a pessimist and a critic right now. There's lots of things going wrong. Um, but we wanted to take an optimistic viewpoint and say, look, things have gotten better, actually, over the last 100 years, remarkably better. We've doubled the average lifespan of the human race. Crime is down. Poverty is down. Almost every major statistic is down dramatically if you look over a long time span. And we have a series of things going on right now that are really going to give us uh, remarkable capabilities to improve the human experience if we can collectively get our act together, if you will. And there are some real threats, and certainly climate change is among them. And no matter where you on the spectrum are, are where you are on the spectrum of uh, how serious climate change is, 
even if you just think about, well, if we just wanted to understand better how much of a threat is it, how actively do we have to be doing things right now, that's one thing you could pursue, and the technology is readily becoming available to make it much easier to understand more clearly how rapidly things are changing, and are we getting into states that are going to be very hard to reverse, and what can we do about that? We certainly believe that's a, a major issue right now, and there's some controversy over it, but I think, especially given the last couple of years of weather, there's less controversy than there used to be, less controversy than there used to be. That's true. Something is happening. And, and you're predicting that the, the evolution of technology will be bringing the costs down? That's correct. That's the, the effect of this nonlinear progression is most readily seen in costs. Sometimes it's in other things. But most of the time you see it as, again, you know, the computer that you pay $1,100 for today, even a few years ago would have been many times that cost, and 30 years ago would have been millions and millions of dollars. And so the ability to use those resources much more broadly and much more uh, create much more significant capabilities from that technology is incredible. So if you're thinking about how to solve or address a particular challenge, then you don't really want to think in these areas, well, what have I got today and what am I going to have tomorrow? You really want to think about where's this stuff going to be 20 years from now? And in order to take advantage of that, where is it going to be 10 years from now? What do I have to start doing today just in order to be prepared to take advantage of that capability? Yeah, it's, I, I'm reminded of my experiences many years ago with um, video cassette players. And, and I think the first one I ever bought was like $1,500, and I think the last time I bought one, I paid $29.95. Yep. Yep, and today, most people only have them if they have old things that they need to convert or that they want to view. Right, exactly. Media that's hardly used anymore because now everything is just done uh, in streaming over the Internet. Well, Tim... Uh, Tim Andrews is my guest, and uh, he is one of three author authors of a book called A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050. And, and I can't help mentioning <laughs> the, the jokes that people are making about Keith Richards and that maybe we should be thinking less about the world we're going to leave our kids and more about the world we're going to leave Keith Richards because he just keeps hanging around. <laughs> um, but all kidding aside, Tim, I have to take a break here. Can you stick around so we can talk about this some more? Sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to do so. Great. Um, anyway, Tim Andrews is my guest, and we're going to take a short break. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my good friend Paul Herring. It's WFOV, our voices radio. And uh, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. 
everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with one of the authors of a new book called A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050. His name is uh, Tim Andrews, and he joins me by phone. Tim, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me, and it's a pleasure to talk. You know, recently I've talked to several authors, that, and there are a number of books out right now that are really talking about pretty much the decline of Western civilization. And in a lot of books that, that speculate about the future, they all very much seem to be dystopian, like 1984 or Brave New World, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, your book seems to be pretty optimistic about the future. What do you base that on? Well, we base it on the fact that, we're again, we're not trying to predict the future. We're trying to say the future isn't predictable and we can do something about it. So it is easy to be dystopian given the kinds of problems that we have right now and, uh, uh, you know, take a, a sort of a dour look at things. And we just decided... Well, that's one side of the coin, but the other side of the coin is none of these things are preordained, and the capabilities that we have are very powerful, so they can cause us great good, but also great harm. If you want to take the dystopian view, the brave new world view, or the uh, um, 1984 view, you can, and you can certainly make that case. And that's one of the reasons we feel so urgently about this, is we have to do something thoughtful, and we have to have the will to act in order to prevent those things, if you will, and to create a more perfect future, to put it in a, sort of make it a purposeful pun, if you will. Um, so that's really the, the attitude we have. We're, we're not saying this is the future. We're not saying this perfect future that we think is out there is the one that will happen if we don't do anything about it. If we just act as we normally act, it's unclear where we'll end up and the dystopian features might come true. But we could say equally, it's not clear those dystopian features are preordained either. And if we act, and we act collectively, individually and collectively, then, then we can potentially create a much better future. Is technology developing and evolving on, on its own natural linear kind of direction or do you think there is some intention to how it's uh, it's unfolding I think it's a little bit of both there uh, technology in general tends to develop based on advances in science so there's sort of a natural progression and from scientific research to technology that we use every day you go all the way back to things like GPS that were really government-funded research programs that now help us you know, get in our car and use maps to get us from point A to point B. And uh, everything from the transistor to the biotech that was used to develop the COVID vaccines 
generally started out in a research organization, often funded by a government. And so there's a, a really important role for funding research that starts most of these advanced technologies, and sometimes those are intentional. And so you can say it's sort of a little bit of both. And then once the technology starts to really blossom, if you will, generally commercial interests will find, oh, I can make lots of money at this, and then they will pursue it aggressively. So an example today uh, that most people aren't really aware of, there are, a lot of people are aware of Tesla and Elon Musk and how much money Tesla's now worth and the fact that they're selling a lot of these electric vehicles and have really changed the marketplace. And I'm sure in the Detroit area that's a, a really uh, important topic of discussion. Um, what most people forget, though, is that it was the United States government that started the autonomous vehicle market with just a few million dollars in what they call grand challenges. Way back in, I think, probably 2004, 2005, that time frame. Um, and just a few million dollars sparked all of this stuff and then was followed up by some investments purposeful, again, intentional investments by the Energy Department uh, that funded uh, Elon Musk, in fact. They gave a $500 million loan to Tesla at a time when you could argue that it probably would have failed if they hadn't gotten that loan. So the government really had an important role both in the early research and the initial funding because they did think it was important to have uh, autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. And you can see that in the current infrastructure bill that's just been, I think, agreed to by both parties that has quite a bit of money to now build out infrastructure for electric vehicles. And now these electric vehicles have taken off in the marketplace, as Tesla demonstrates in virtually every major car maker now is making big investments in uh, some sort of electric vehicle technology. Tim, I mentioned that, that you were one of three authors of this book, A Brief, a Brief History of a Perfect Future. Um, how did the three of you get together and, and work together on this book? Uh, well, the three of us met many, many you know, decades ago, so we've known each other for a long time. And in fact, we worked with this fellow, Alan Kay, that we mentioned, who was uh, a big part of our inspiration around this stuff. Um, so that's how we met. And so we've known each other for a long time and been in touch. And it was actually uh, Chunk Amui and Paul Carroll who had sort of started with this idea of what we call the laws of zero and looking at these large, long trends where capability is increasing so fast that costs are decreasing uh, very fast in these technologies and what the implications are. And I'm... Uh, uh, Vice President at Booth Allen Hamilton, and we do a lot of work with the federal government. And we connected over the idea that the federal government would be really important in helping these things out, and we could provide some insight to uh, what that experience would be like in terms of making this future perfect and where it fit in. And so the three of us got together about a year and a half ago to take these uh, initial ideas that Chuck and Paul had and turn them into a book. And We've been writing ever since, and, you know, the good news is because of the incredible technological advances due to the Internet and uh, computers and broadband, we were able to work pretty easily right through the pandemic, even though we couldn't travel or anything. It just, anybody who's been an author, and in fact, you on radio know, it's pretty easy to trade around 
copy and various kinds of things using electronic communications. Oh, sure. You know, I, I, talking about the, the cost of technology coming down, there's also a concern about the impact of technology on the economy. Um, Andrew Yang, for example, when he first announced he was going to run for president back in, what was it, 2016, um, wrote a book in it, and, and he talked about uh, universal business or uh, what was it universal basic, basic income. income and he talked about that in his brief campaign but several other people have talked about it and the the premise is basically this technology is going to make it so that we no longer need people to do manufacturing and other jobs even some service jobs um, with AI and so on, and, and um, you know we've we've seen the proliferation of of people's usage of electronic media and the internet during the pandemic, um, and so it's it's not hard to imagine. In looking forward, do you see a reinvention of economics? Uh, well. I'm not yeah, saying do you support yeah. a UBI, Tim. I, I, am just. No, saying. no, that's okay. I think I think it's a it's an interesting question. Personally, that's one I I thought about a lot over many years. The, um, I guess here's the way I think about it. This is my two cents. The, uh, the ability to produce more and more with less and less. That's sort of the definition of wealth in economics, and. In fact, if you look at us where we already are today, we could produce today enough food for every person in the world, all 7 billion of us, and have leftovers. And it really doesn't even cost that much money, but we don't. So part of the problem is that we have this abundance, but we don't know how to get it and spread it evenly. And that's a lot of the conversation today around equity and inequity, whether it's of... Uh, economic direct cash terms like money or other kinds of inequality. There's a lot of it out there, and it's, it's a very complex problem to deal with. So what people are now talking about is it's becoming more and more visible that, oh, this is going to start to affect potentially all parts of working economy, uh, I guess pe people's work, maybe is the simplest way to put it, that, you know, lawyers and doctors and people who who we think of as professionals that we never thought would be impacted by this actually are going to be impacted by it. And people have some bad memories, and rightly so, of what happened in manufacturing when robotics took over and a lot of people's jobs were displaced, very good jobs were displaced, and there wasn't much effort made to do much about that. So there's a real issue um, that in creating all this wealth, where does that wealth end up? And how does that get distributed. And that's the real challenge is figuring that out. I don't think there is a simplistic answer. Universal basic income is an interesting compromise and, and could be a very good answer. But it's just a complicated problem. And this is one of the things where we say, again, sort of from the book perspective, you need to think about this stuff and think hard about it. And this is just one example. It's, well, let's suppose we had incredible abundance and just enormous wealth created by all this technology, 
but it doesn't require that many people to do that much work to do it. So the rising tide lifts all boats theory says, well, more work will require more people, and everybody will get better off as a result. But what if that doesn't happen? What if the results of all this wealth will tend to accumulate in the pockets of a very small number of people if we aren't careful? That's not generally considered a great... I, I don't think that's a great outcome, but what do we do about it? So that's that's a big problem, and uh, I think it needs... I think there is a, a case to be made that we need to think about these equity issues and ethical issues as much as we need to think about the technological issues. And how, how did you manage between the three of you with this book, A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050? How did you organize and set out the challenges? Um, the, I guess we mostly looked at it from the perspective of looking at what were the inevitable, from our perspective, building blocks that would be available. So we looked at, you know, seven areas, computing, broadband, information, energy, uh, I'll have to go back and look at my own chapters, water, uh, and, uh, um, Genetics, and uh, these—they're just going to happen. If the genies are out of the bottle. These things are moving at incredible rates. So there's going to be these building blocks that are capable, and then we started to look at well, what are the big areas that we have serious challenges that are kind of obvious, and what or, or where these technologies will have such impact that it's hard to ignore. So we looked at things like energy and electricity, climate change, transportation. Um, healthcare as obvious places where these have affect almost everybody. They're really impacted by these technological capabilities. And again, we have some choices. If we put our shoulders to the wheel, we can make some uh, collectively good things happen. And if we just sort of let things happen, then it's unclear how things will work out. So we're, we're big advocates of getting together and putting some thoughtful effort on them in these big areas. That makes sense. It does. One of the things that you talk about um, in some of these different areas—transportation, healthcare, climate, and trust—how do how do we get the the lack of trust in in science, in government, in uh, uh, business leaders, and in, in media for that matter? How do we manage to establish trust going forward? It's a, it's a great question, and again, one to which I won't profess to know the absolute answer. What we try to do again in the book is paint a possible answer, um, and that possibility is based upon two big ideas, if you will. One is every time that we have a big shift in the way we communicate, we tend to have trust issues for a while because there are suddenly new ways of uh, talking with people to make, you know, we don't really talk literally when we send bits around, but radio is an example. And so if you think back to when Orson Welles did the original broadcast of uh, the Martian invasion, people thought it was real. Yeah. And it caused a lot of chaos for a while. 
and there was all sorts of crazy stuff going on with the Telegraph and with books and with other kinds of publications when printing was first invented. So all sorts of so new new ways of communicating create both great advances and great challenges because people just don't know how to cope with them. And so all sorts of scams were perpetuated on these old mediums and now we have these new mediums like social media um, that uh, has both great things about them and being able to create communities across large distances and really help people out, but also some negative sides in that they make it very, very easy to uh, create fake, you know, deep fakes or whatever you want to call them to really uh, uh, create the, the divisions that we have, the deep divisions that we have sometimes that amplify those divisions because it's so easy to get into your own world, the media term that gets used is the echo chamber. So you just only talk to your friends and people who agree with you, and we end up being very polarized as a result of that. And, you know, this is brand new stuff. We've only had, remember, Facebook wasn't even founded until the early 2000s. So 20 years isn't very long for a new communications medium. And we're going to have to figure out how to deal with these issues when people are obviously misrepresenting things. And those misrepresentations have real impact, as we saw in, uh, in people trying to manipulate our elections. And so, you know, what we think about in the book is, first of all, understanding that and understanding that we're going to need new kinds of mechanisms and new kinds of education just for people to begin to learn to cope with it. So today, I think if your radio show started announcing the Martian invasion, most people would take it with a grain of salt before they believed it, no matter how real it sounded, because Radio's been around for now 100 plus years, and so they're not quite so easily uh, duped, if you will. But on the other hand, in, in Facebook and things like that, and especially because they are more vivid, because we can create video and make things look more real, it's even harder. And we're going to have to put some effort into figuring out how do we do that. Now, there are ways that we can, and that's the other big idea in the book is, well, you know, the basic answer to truth is triangulation. So, like GPS lets you know exactly where something is by looking at it from three different points. And once you get three different points, you can pretty much accurately describe where anything is to within, these days, within a couple of feet at, at least. And similarly, if you have three different sources, you could say, well, that makes it a lot harder to say this isn't true if I have three different independent sources and, of course, news and radio and things have used this for a long time. And with the Internet, we can explode that number and say, well, we could have 100 different sources that are all pointing in this direction. Now, there's still the issue of who decides which sources are credible. And we can see that playing out right now because there's a group of people who will say this source is credible and that source is not. And it goes all the way back to, at some level, the old... I think Groucho Marx joke of uh, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes. And, <laughs> I'd, uh, forgotten. So even if it, I'd forgotten that yeah. one, Tim. Thanks for that. Yeah. So even if it, there's tons of evidence right in front of you, if your moral identity is based around believing a certain way, it's not, not easy. Sinclair Lewis wrote about this in the jungle 100 years ago as well, where he sort of said, you know, it's, it's virtually impossible to convince somebody of something if their salary depends upon them not believing it. 
So that kind of stuff is human nature and doesn't go away no matter what we do. Um, but the more we can provide alternate sources of information, more of them, the more we can triangulate our way to the truth and get more people to believe, okay, this, is, this seems pretty credible and we better take it seriously. Tim, when did or does the, the book officially uh, come out? I was officially launched on the 21st of September, so just a few days ago. Oh, okay. So so it's out and, and widely available. Um, again, the name of the book is A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050 which sounds like a long way off, but it's not that far off. Um, Tim, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share some of the thoughts from this book uh, with me and the listeners today. But I always give guests, uh, we're almost out of time, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and, and the other authors uh, of the book and, and your work, past, present, and future. Uh, do you have a website? Uh, we do. It's called perfectfuturebook.com, so pretty easy to remember. And that site contains information about the authors, pointers to where you can buy the book, and uh, ways you can engage in the conversation with us. Well, Tim, thank you so much for uh, spending this time with me. I really appreciate this, uh, this conversation. And yet I feel like we're just scratching the surface. We hope so. We think there's a lot to be done, but we're optimistic that we can do it. Well, Tim, thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure. All right. That was uh, Tim Andrews, uh, one of three self-described futurists, strategists, and technologists looking to make a difference in a new book called A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050. And uh, wouldn't that be nice? We've got uh, more coming up on the show. Next hour, we're going to talk with, uh, who do we have coming up? Oh, Lisa Wilson. This is going to be interesting. She's come up with a way to find out if, um, not just if you have COVID, but how protected you are against it. And she's been applying this, uh, this test uh, on Hollywood movie sets and, and for other clients of uh, uh, the business that she and her partner run, Epitome Risk. But <clears throat> we're going to take a uh, short break. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV, our Voices Radio, 92.1 LPFM Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House, Spectacle Productions, and my good friend Paul Herring. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when uh, when we go to break. If you're streaming us on TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. I will tell you that tomorrow is the first of three shows dedicated to... Uh, visiting with the uh, candidates for Flint City Council. Um, we're going to do uh, three days, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, to get all nine wards and all of the candidates on the show. So tomorrow begins with uh, day one of the, of the three days, and it's uh, wards one, two, and three. So be sure and join us tomorrow for that. 
Uh, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you are invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? 
Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. what was making the factory go. It was IBM, it was Univac, it was all those gears going clickety-clack. Dear, I thought automation was keen till you were replaced by a 10-ton machine. It was that computer that tore us apart, dear. Automation broke my heart. There's an RCA 503 standing next to me, dear, where you used to be. Doesn't have your smile, doesn't have your shape, just a bunch of punch cards and light bulbs and tape, dear. You're a girl who's soft, warm, and sweet, but you're only human, and that's obsolete. Though I'm very fond of Dear, automation's not for me. It was automation, I'm told. That's why I got fired and I'm out in the cold. How could I have known? When the 503 started in to blink, it was winking at me, dear. I thought it was just some mishap when it sidled over and sat on my lap. But when it said, I love you, That's when I pulled out its plug. <laughs> this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
spiral like a wheel within a wheel, never ending or beginning on a never spinning reel, like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon, like a carousel is turning and running rings around the moon, like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of space, and the world is like an apple. Just hanging in a hole. 
spiral Like a wheel within a wheel Never ending or beginning All and never spinning real As the images unwind Like the circles that you find In the windmills of your mind Staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride I'll see you on the other side It's not the same without you here this phone so tight And I'll whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 